founder or an entrepreneur. You wanna take your company value to 300 million, we gon' show you how to do it. Well, we got the roadmap, the aspirations. We'll give you a game plan and strategies. Seize control of your company's destiny today by tuning in to Private Capital Mastery. Yeah, yeah. Let's start the show. Welcome back to the Private Capital Mastery Podcast. I'm Brian Franco, and I have been extremely excited about the content that we've been producing, the guests that we've had on the show, and the feedback that you as the listeners have provided us. We've heard a lot from the thought-provoking content and material that we're producing is very valuable, the education of certain vehicles and instruments, and really, when you think about it, these strategies, right, that founders and entrepreneurs can use and deploy in their business. We have been producing content at a rapid pace, and I wanted to take a moment to slow down and share more about me and my personal life story, where I've been. Of course, you see where I'm at, but I want to share with you how this all started. And it's going to be difficult to replicate that other than repurposing a podcast that I was a guest on with Kyle Knowles. He did a fantastic job interviewing me and asking me questions that I was able to answer very clearly, but things that I don't typically talk about. And I'm excited to share those with you and just give you a look and a perspective into my life, into my lifestyle, and how I ended up where I am today. So we are going to be showing you this podcast recording with Kyle Knowles, and it's about an hour in length, so hopefully it's enjoyable for you to hear my story, and we will regroup in about a week with our next episode of Private Capital Mastery with thought-provoking guests, and then we're going to be rolling into a series where I'm going to dissect the private capital markets what it means to you, and how do you leverage those markets using an insider's playbook to access the capital for growth, scale, to sale of your company. I hope you enjoy it. Hello there. Welcome to the Maker Manager Money podcast, a podcast about entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, founders, business owners, and business partnerships. From startups to stay-ups, to inspire entrepreneurs to keep going, and future entrepreneurs to just start. My name is Kyle Knowles, and it's a Friday in Carlsbad, California. We're actually in the Carlsbad room at Kiln Carlsbad. Kiln is completely killing it in the co-working space industry, and I believe that they are the GOAT. They are the LeBron James, or if you're old school, the Michael Jordan of co-working <laughs> spaces. Uh, today's guest is Brian T. Franco. Brian is the founder and managing partner of Meritage Partners, a mergers and acquisitions advisory firm he started in 2005. With nearly two decades of experience in the M&A and business advisory space, Brian has established himself as one of the most consistent deal makers in the industry. His vision is to work with companies that aren't yet ready for an exit and get them there. To date, he has deployed over $2 billion in capital, 
while representing a diverse range of companies across industries like healthcare, tech, and professional services. When he's not busy putting together deals, Brian is a board advisor and supports organizations like the Women's Care Center. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you for having me, and it's fun to be here, and, and it's it's interesting to hear that intro because it, it, it brings me back to kind of my journey, right, as a human, as an entrepreneur, and lo- lo- looking forward to unpacking that and, and just sharing more with you guys. So thank you for having me on the show, though. Well, thanks for being here, and thanks for making the effort to get, get down here. Yeah. There's so much more to this. I, I mean, I've had a couple of introductory calls with you. We've talked offline. Um, so let's just let's get into... I guess tell me about your childhood. Let's let's start there, <laughs> and 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 how you developed into an entrepreneur. Let's just start from yeah. the beginning. Did you have parents, family members that were entrepreneurs, and how yeah. did you start getting into it? Did you have a lemonade stand? Those kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a lemonade stand, and we did actually a, a neighborhood car wash. Uh, my brother and I, and uh, it, that was fun. That those were. Man, gosh, I haven't thought about that for a long time. But yeah, my father was uh, my father was an entrepreneur. Uh, he owned he owned uh, several businesses, primarily service businesses. And uh, you know, with that wealth and with that income, he he uh, diverted that into real estate holdings. And 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 so I saw that at a young age. I remember you know my father sharing and you know likely bragging right about his son Brian how. I can articulate the process of a real estate transaction at 10 years old. And I knew what escrow was. I knew what purpose of deposit was. And he just loved that. I knew that. But I just by learned by way of osmosis, just hanging out with dad, you know, going to meetings with dad. And, and they were boring at times, right? But you would still absorb the information. You still hear the words being spoken. And they didn't have as much substance as they, they do today, but I was still absorbing it, right? And and kids, I have four, and they don't miss anything. <laughs> they, they hear pick it up. everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so my parents are, are, are today are still married, and um, my father since retired. Um, but in my journey, in my life, uh, I grew up as a middle child. I had an older sister and a younger brother. Although I do call my older sister, Christy, I call her my little sister. Um, uh, but as a middle child, I like to, I like to imagine how I come into the work that I am in today because I was always the peacekeeper of the family. I was always the intermediary, right? Working and sorting through, I don't want to say problems, but challenges in, in, the, in the household dynamic. And it was always important to me that, you know, I, I spent time, you know, with, with everyone in the family. And uh, but as a middle child, you know, you're sometimes you have to work harder because you're sometimes left out of the game or sometimes you're, you know, you're left out of the conversation. Right. Because, you know, the, the, the baby is the baby, always will be the baby in the family, right? So they'll always get that love and attention, just like my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and then the oldest will always be that guinea pig of the family, right? So, right. Uh, you know, typically the, the oldest child in the family is the parents are the most strict. Right. And, and typically they're the most rebellious. And so you see that dynamic play out. And I did as a child, right? But growing up, I mean... You know, from having lemonade stands to uh, we, we would go around washing cars. And uh, I remember one summer, you know, uh, the other kids were like inspired by it. They're like, well, 
you're making money doing this? I'm like, yeah. And, and you're having fun? Yeah. Can we do it? They're like, sure. You know? And so we, we actually had a, a choice of who would help us. And so we would, my brother and I would figure out who was like the most efficient and we would, th- those that were efficient, we'd bring them back for the next job or jobs. And everyone was always so like willing to have you wash their car. Right. And so that made it easy for us to step into that. But in that we had a budget, right? We knew what our soap costs were. We knew what our time was worth. We knew, you know, to go out there and, and, and establish the relationship with the customer to wash their car was. So we ended up, you know, we would, we would write it this out, even on pencil, like number two pencil and paper. And everyone would, we would divvy up the payments at the end and, and we do it over and over and again. And which was, what was cool about that is years later with, with my son, Braden, who's now 13, I went through that same exercise with him because he was, he was, he didn't do a lemonade stand. His, his niche was lemonade delivered. And so he would make the lemonade at home. They would put it in a wagon and then they would go around the neighborhood and they would sell it. And he did, he did great. So we estimated like, okay, one pound bag of sugar is, I don't, I don't remember the cost. Let's say it was $5. And then he, we would determine how much sugar he would use per batch and how much lemons. And sometimes he would have to buy the lemons, but sometimes the neighbor would give him free lemons. Right. So it's like his, his cost of goods sold would change yeah. <laughs> from, from batch to batch. Right. But then they would determine, okay, this is what we have to sell it for. And it was, it was good for him. Like, and so I believe that, you know, that was an experience that will stay with him. And uh, hopefully you'll stay with him in a good way because it showed him how to be a good steward of that money that he was earning while covering his cogs and his right. labor because his labor was his younger brother and one of the neighborhood kids, actually. Okay. So it was cool. It was cool. But, you know, growing up, um, I, I, what's, what's unique about my story, and you mentioned that uh, I was... Uh, um, um, on the board of a women's care center. A women's care center is a leading inner city, um, a center designed for, to really reach out to crisis pregnancy scenarios and situations. And so as a teenage father, which I was, um, my oldest Jacob will be 28 to in two weeks. And, um, so I, he was born in 2000. I'm so sorry late 1900s, 1995, he was born. I was a sophomore, second half of my sophomore year in high school. I was 16 years old, a month shy of 17. I turned 17 on January 22nd. And, and this whole experience slingshotted me in a manhood. I knew that I was too young to be married. I knew that Jacob's mother was not my destined wife, but I knew that you know, look, the, the natural consequence of being a promiscuous child is a, a child, is <laughs> right. a baby, right? right. So, um, but Jacob was born and uh, I graduated high school at 17 and a half. I went, to, I went to summer school every year. So I got those extra credits and so it allowed me to, but my, my senior year, my second half of my senior year, I had two electives. One of them was work experience, so I worked. And the other one was uh, an art class. So I literally finished high school uh, halfway through my senior year. But the last half was me just filling out a coloring book 
because it was an art class. It was more than a coloring book, right? And then I was working. And I worked at a, uh, at that time, I worked at a movie prop house. We had nothing but medical movie props on the sets. We had permanent sets on Chicago Hope and ER, if you remember those oh, shows. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and we did, you know, fun sets. Like uh, we had a set on, um, what was the movie where Arnold Schwarzenegger gave birth? Is that like, not Kindergarten Cop, but one of those... Uh, it's not twins or no, not what? twins. Well, I always forget the name of that movie, but we we did that yeah. whole scene where okay. Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger gave birth to a child. <laughs> I can't remember. I have to remember that name of that movie if I'm to say this story. And then um, there was a funny movie. Well, not funny, but it was a terrible movie, that which made it funny. Volcano, and Volcano was a movie about how the La Brea tar pits in LA erupted into a volcano. And so it was just mass hysteria. And it was, it was a fun experience, but we had like, we managed that whole set. We had gurneys and it was a cool experience. So I did that while I was in, in college. And in college, I, I did this a la carte education where I was studying accounting. Um, my, my desire was to be a CPA. And I also enjoyed law. So I specifically studied real estate law and, and ended up earning my broker's real estate broker's license at 20 or 21 years old. So I always had it and, and it, was, it was fun to me. But um, so right out of college, I ended up working. Um, oh, one important thing. I also went to school for computer science specifically with an emphasis in networking, computer networking. And so we learned a lot about the Novell networks mm -hmm. at that time, right? Which was the origin of calling. If you used Google Drive, you can figure out no, no, no Novell, right? right. <laughs> it's just permissioning and access yeah. rights, right? Yeah. And so um, I, with my accounting background and with the computer networking emphasis, um, I worked with a mortgage company that. Uh, I, I just, I looked on the other side of the table and just saw the movement and the, and the puzzle pieces being solved on a daily basis. So I applied my accounting background to that and I immediately got into mortgages, not within a year, right? And um, which then led to, which was more residential focus that evolved into uh, commercial and industrial, which evolved into business lending, SBA products mm -hmm. like 504 products and Southern okay. A products. And um, through that and in that, you know, um, experience, and I was still in, in my early 20s here. I was, you know, 22 years old uh, going through, through all of this and experiencing all of this. And what we did was um, my business clients were, were very happy with the, with the performance and the work and our, our, my ability to access the capital that they needed. Granted, I mean, these were small transactions at that time. I mean, a million dollar deal for me at that time was like, I felt like I was on the top of the world, mm -hmm. right? I mean, where today is like, you know, typically we like our clients to be profiting $2 million or more a year, right? Right. So you see the evolution, but at that time, I was able to cut my teeth and you know learn about modeling and about debt service and about you know how a balance sheets how a balance sheet impacts underwriting uh, and ultimately you know uh, allowing for an approval or not right right and so uh, what I found is that our clients were asking us because a lot of these some, well, not a lot but some of these financing um, 
requests were for business acquisitions. So these business acquisitions, these business acquisition loans were um, were unique because not a lot of folks were servicing this type of clientele, and and I just knew it very well, um, and that led to clients saying, well, look, I, I want to acquire this company and I want to acquire that company and I want to scale my company. So that led to me targeting opportunities for them. So I was at that time very, uh, my name was very well known in the auto towing industry. And uh, why not a very, you know, the, the glamour was in the green, but why is because I had a couple clients in that space okay. and auto towing was, is one of those industries where you, know, you just kind of imagine like a dirty, grimy, greasy guy just, you know, coming out and servicing a car, but it was much more than that. And uh, these clients, they had contracts with uh, AAA, you know, to do lockout assist, battery jumps. So they did do that service aspect, all right? Um, but there was also contracts with the California Highway Patrol, the CHP, with the police departments, with the sheriff departments. And these contracts were well sought out. So think of, you know, waste management. Waste management is the nation's largest rubbish collector, trash collector, right? And so they have, waste management has municipal contracts to collect that trash, which is ultimately paid through um, the cities typically, right? And uh, so the towing operations were no different. So they had these contracts with with municipalities. So um, let's say you were unfortunately in a car accident. If you're on the highway, AAA cannot come to tow you. The contract was with a, uh, an approved highway patrol tower. So they would come, they'd move you tow you, move you off the freeway. And then if you had a third party service to come get you, great, they would, they would figure that out. But these contracts were very valuable. And so what made them valuable was the amount of cash flow they would generate. And there was as the, 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 the money that was being made was not just on towing the vehicle, but also the aftermath of an accident or the aftermath of, let's say, if someone was irresponsible and had a, a DUI. So when you have a DUI, the vehicle, well, the driver goes to jail, but guess what? So does that vehicle. So that vehicle goes to jail for 90 days. It, it ranges, in, but 30 to 90 days. And so they tow your car, they lock it up, just like you know, the human being gets locked up, and they have to pay a daily rate for that vehicle. So 90 days later, right, and if the, if the daily charges were $100, right, they're coming in out of pocket and spending the money to get their car out of car jail, <laughs> basically. Right, right. And then there was towing fees, release fees, so on and so forth. So I, I did, before I was 23, actually, yeah, probably before I was 23 years of age, I probably did over two dozen towing M&A transactions. And yeah, I just, you know, there was a lot to to navigate through from not just the financing aspect, right? Which was complex in itself, but how do you get these contracts that were, they didn't have, um, there was no provisions in those contracts that, that allowed an owner to transfer the contract to another owner. You had to go through a certain process because these were municipalities, but I figured that out. I figured out how to do it, 
right? And we did it. We did it over, rinse and repeat, over and over and over and over again. And so that led to me working with a smaller boutique uh, group. And I was there until 2000 and from about 2003 to 2005. 2005, uh, I remember uh, in January of 05, we were doing a, re a year in review of 2004. And in 2004, I was 72% of the company's revenues at, at, at that time, I was 25 years old. So I, uh, in, in May 5th of 2005, after having this vision of building my own firm, I did it, and I you know, filed for uh, the corporation. And, and this was, to keep in mind, Kyle, this was three months before my wife, Melody, and I were married. We were married in, in August 13th of 2005. And so it was scary. You know, my, my son Jacob was, I think, six, seven years old at that time. I had my first house. I was, I was engaged, you know. So all, everything's just moving, 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 right? This year, here we sit, where we sit, right? At the end of 2023, we, this year we celebrated 18 years of the firm and 18 years of marriage. And it's been a crazy run. It's been a fun run. But, you know, so that's, that's my journey. That's how I, that's where I started. And, and you know, so you think about what, what were the motivating drivers for me? You know, um, early on, it was... It was my son, Jacob, right? Um, I knew I needed to be a role model for him. I knew I needed to provide for him. And so I'm, to where I sit today, I'm 44 years old. I'll be 45 next month. I've been a, I've been a father and a provider longer than I haven't at, at this time in my life. And so Jacob's birthday is coming up on the 29th. He'll be 28. Um, and then I have my wife, Melody, and I. We have uh, Brayden, who's 13. Nolan, who's 10. And... Layla, who just turned eight years old yesterday. And uh, so we spent the evening at Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, yeah, Layla. Yeah, yeah. We, all woke, awesome. we all woke up with a little, we call it a amusement, amusement park hangover, right? We're just exhausted from the, spinning around. Yeah, and spinning doing all the around rides and, and walking around yeah. and yeah. just ingesting all that sugar. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a good time. So, but yeah, that's, that's, that's the story. But Meritage Partners today, um, you know, we, we, as you described, we've deployed over $2 billion in capital. And as an investment banking firm, what we do is we advise our entrepreneur clients on strategies to grow, scale, and exit their companies. What makes us unique is that we design and build a strategy for the entrepreneur that ultimately collapses time for them. And we collapse time for them by the, the strategy is not just your typical, you know, generate more revenue, generate more profit, right? It's more than that because we're, we're, we're really reverse engineering the, 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 the ultimate plan is reverse engineered, I should say, so that we can enable them to collapse time to yes, grow and enhance their income, but to generate a massive outcome through exit strategies. And those exit strategies typically come through some sort of M&A transaction and process, creating a liquidity event, thus creating generational wealth for our clients, which, you know, it, it's interesting. We're in one of those industries where the, the quicker we 
we we lose a client the better because <laughs> you know that <laughs> right. that's what that means lose. success that means yeah. success right yeah. but um i don't want to say we lose the client because there's a fine line there where you know you develop lifelong relationships and how many times uh, if i could count that i've been invited to go fly fishing in montana you know with with a business owner stakeholders of a company we just sold i mean it's it's countless right and you know but i always remind them hey i'm still working <laughs> that sounds great yeah every now yeah. and then I'll, I'll i'll join you know some yeah. of these adventures yeah. and, and and they are fun they are it, and it's very rewarding um both from you know yes but you're still working yeah yeah so i'm still working right? i didn't sell my company i'm not retired okay just yes yeah. exactly i mean certainly in the plan right but no we didn't sell our company but you know we we do develop these lifelong relationships and a lot of times um we we maintain those relationships we stay in touch and of course you know early on in the in the, in the firm you know we we did zero marketing our marketing was by way of word of mouth and referral and the what i was describing to you that you know the reward is twofold for us you know there's monetary value yes a big piece of the reward for me as an individual is being able to solve that puzzle piece i have in, in, at different levels always had the ability to look at a situation almost in three dimension you know eyes open or eyes closed and i can take that three-dimensional design whatever it may be in, in, in the work that we do, it's, it's really structure, right? I could pull it apart. I could twist it around. I could put it back together. I could see it inside and out. And, and that natural born talent has enabled me to provide the guidance that we do to entrepreneurs because every deal, you know, the process is the same, but every deal is different because expectations are different. And entrepreneurs are, are artists, really, when you think about it. They have an artistic ability of developing a business. And no one, I, I would argue that, you know, no one, you could be, you and I could be in the same industry, but we would build different companies because we would build different cultures. And cultures is the human element of what we're building, right? And so from that standpoint, it is an art. You know, there is science to it, yes but there is an art to it for sure. Yeah. 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 So, so this is good. This is a good segue into, um, so I, I guess what, what I would ask you, Brian is pretend I'm an entrepreneur. I've yeah. grown this business for 20 years. I'm kind of ready to exit. Like at what, at what stage does an entrepreneur reach out to a company like yours and say, help me to get hands a little more hands off yeah. and get the company ready to exit I'm ready to do this. And then you know, typically how long is the process yeah. of you working with a company? So when a client is introduced or potential clients introduced to us and they say to me, Brian, I want to exit in five years. So I'll give you a call in five years. And uh, uh, my response typically is, you know, you should probably call me in six to 12 months. Right. And, and arguably we should start now. And here's why. If you want to be exited or if you want to exit your business in five years, right? And depending on what you're doing, you could be a pro you could provide a product, you provide a service. It could be a combination thereof. We are experts at maximizing enterprise value. 
And we do that by way of almost a SWOT analysis initially that helps us understand the transferability of the company. And typically entrepreneurs of businesses that are generating profit from, let's say, a million dollars to $15 million a year. And this is profit, not revenue. They are a very big part of the day-to-day operation, right? And you can't surgically just remove that individual from the organization because the organization is organic at some capacity, right? So in this initial analysis, we, we determine, you know, what is that? What, 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 how do they score from a transferability standpoint, right? And we, it's, a, it's a scale from zero to 100. We want the client to score an 80 or greater. And that scoring mechanism shows us where they typically land on the valuation spectrum, right? So let's say you're in an industry that is trading at four to six times EBITDA, right? Well, which is it? Is it four? Is it four and a half? Is it five, five and a half? Is it six? What is it, right? So the initial assessment that we do allows us to pinpoint on that spectrum of where you would fall, right? Are you best in class or are you struggling to get through the day-to-day, right? And if you're struggling, I mean, even if you're, the spectrum of valuation range is four to six, you might be a two. You might be a two and a half, right? Because when you compare this to, a, let's say, a, a real estate transaction, a building, that building has a specific purpose. And, and sometimes it can have multiple purposes if, there's, if it's going to be redeveloped. But even if the, in that situation, it has a special purpose. And based on that purpose, it's going to, have a, it's going to derive a valuation, right? A business is not too different, right? It's, it's designed to provide a product, a service, or a combination thereof. And if that entrepreneur is working in that business and, and wearing several hats, which typically they are, and that's okay, right? Um, that business is going to be impacted if they were to exit. And sometimes those exits are planned when you, when you reach out to our firm. And we've had situations where we're, we're, we're working with what we're dealt with, right? In one situation, we had a client that was um, in his early 40s. He was in the um, oil business, lubricants, commercial lubricants. And he left the, the office on a Friday. He was a motorcycle rider, you know, rode over the weekend, and he never showed up to work again. He was in an accident and ended up being uh, quadriplegic. And uh, essentially, you know, in, as it, time went on, he was a human vegetable. Could not run the business. Was, you know, for all we know, he was unaware of what had happened, right? So we ended up coming in, pr- pr- putting a strategy together. That strategy was designed and, and, and worked on with his grandmother, right? Because his mother was not of mental capacity to kind of go through this process. And... Fortunately, we did get the transaction done. We sold it to a strategic acquirer because that, that's, that's what's also unique about us is we're looking for that one plus one equals three or greater equation. One plus one, if it equals two, that's, you know, anyone could do that in my mind, right? But what makes us unique is finding that extra value. 
And that's typically through strategic acquirers or investors in the marketplace. And that's exactly what we did for this gentleman. I should say for this family. You, you feel accomplished, yes, when you, when you consummate that transaction, but your heart also breaks, right? Because you see so many willing and able and capable entrepreneurs that go about their daily lives thinking there's no end in sight. This is not going to stop, right? I could always do this and I could always do it at the levels that I'm showing up with at, you know, today even. And so this is why this assessment is crucial because it helps illustrate to an entrepreneur or the stakeholders of a company, if there's a partnership, what is the transferability of your, of your company and what's the viability of your business to an investor, right? Now, it's not the end of the world if they're, if you're scoring a 70, you know, if you can't score an 80 because you are just so involved in the business. Because there are, it just tells us, you know, what, what strategy to employ, right? And, and to, to execute on. But that planning takes at least a year to one, you know, assess up front. There are tweaks that could be made in 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days. But then there are also some uh, um, transitions that will occur, you know, over a year period. And when you take an inventory of those, of that analysis, there are always some items, let's say, that cannot be cured from a transferability standpoint until the deal is done. And so, so as long as we know that, we, and we can plan for that, we don't come to market by way of looking, you know, desperate or unprepared or uh, even, even, um, even in a situation where we lose leverage, right? We never go to market in that, with that mindset, right? And with that type of plan. If those items of, of lack of transferability are inventoried and presented as in terms of the rationale for the transaction or the sale or merger, then that becomes the appetizing piece of this to investors and buyers because they too are looking for that one plus one equals greater than three equation, right? If there's synergies, if there's cross-pollination, if there's some way and somehow to access critical mass, whether that's geographic reach, discipline, or even product reach, right? And it's the better together model, right? And so some of those items will be cured. Again, I'm repeating myself, but will they'll be cured by the transaction itself. And that transaction can occur where we call it the, you know, rip off the rear view mirror approach where you're in the car, you rip off the rear view mirror and you never look back. And that for some, some entrepreneurs, that is the expectation. And we could, we could achieve that. We could reach that with the proper planning. And in, with some clients, I'll give you a case study we're working on right now. It's an infrastructure company. Uh, focused on dry utilities, so think of power, power tra uh, transmission and telecom. He's 50 years old, relatively young. He's nowhere near retirement in my mind. He's got a ton of energy, I mean, more energy than, than, than you see in a typical 50-year-old. And what's unique about him is that he sits in an industry where his peer group are late in their 60s, 70. And they're looking for an exit strategy, right? 
but he has what we call as a platform and that platform can can grow by way of organic growth yes right and that's just you know hiring the right people bringing on new clients and customers and executing on that but then there, there's growth through acquisition where the his peer group that's in their 60s late 60s and 70s they're looking for a way out and he's perfectly positioned to acquire those companies roll them up under his platform at 50 and we have a plan with him you know it's just two years right two-year plan to do this to, to approach this roll-up strategy double the size of his company we think we could do it in 18 months but we're going to have to leverage the capital markets which we're experts at you know we we understand based on the situation where do they access that capital capital typically comes in two forms it's either debt or equity or a combination thereof and figuring out that puzzle that you know we we're discussing earlier um, allows them and enables them to execute on those strategies whether it's organic growth or growth through acquisition and at 50 years old even if he decided to retire in in, in two years which he could um, in that planning as we develop the business, we're going to bring on his wife. I didn't mention this, I should, but his wife's the controller today. So she's the first one to exit. We're going to bring on a professional CFO. We're going to, we're going to set this platform up for this growth that I'm describing. And then we're going, we've already identified his re replacement or a CEO that would replace him. And, and that CEO would be positioned to run a company that's twice the size that it is today. Today, they're about $20 million point of reference. L last year, they were 20 million. This year, they'll generate um, uh, 24 of revenue. So they have you know, substantial growth. So at the end of this, this strategy, he has options. He could either you know, sell the company that we just you know, grew, uh, ideally doubled, or um, he, could, he could exit the business he could exit the business or he can keep the CEO that we're putting in place and just, you know, sit on the board. He has options. And that's what you always want as an entrepreneur is options. Because if you're ever backed in a corner and you're, you're making decisions under duress, you know, I don't know about you, but the decisions that I've had to make under duress, when I look back, I'm not happy with those decisions because usually I did not achieve what I had intended I mean, granted, I, I learned something along the way, right? But I did not achieve or reach my intended goal or target. And that's what I love about options. And, and even when we negotiate, this is something that we employ in, in, in our tactics is, you know, if, if, if an investor is giving us an offer for a client, I always encourage that investor to give us two options, right? You don't need to hit the target, the bullseye of the target the first time. Give us two options. Compare and contrast. All right, let's see. Let's test what you're offering, what you're able to offer with our client. And let's see if there's a pathway forward. Now, our fiduciary responsibility is with typically the seller client. And we'll, we'll show them, you know, by way of comparison, you know, what is more aligned with their expectations what, what maximizes enterprise value while minimizing risks and providing some level of liquidity. There's always an answer there. We just have to figure out, you know, what it is. 
but you don't figure that out by giving somebody one flavor, right? I always say, if you just give me plain vanilla and I don't like it, you don't know what I like, right? But if you give me uh, uh, chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry, I could tell you which flavor I like and why, right? So it's a simple, silly illustration, but it, it really it really articulates like what we're trying to find out, you know, with the client in this process. So they, I could go on and on, on on different case studies, but I think this helps give some color to, to what that process looks like. And in terms of planning, we would love to plan five years out. We would love to plan, and then that's not always the case, right? But if it's a year or two years, we have ways to collapse time and, and to get to the intended destination. And, and I will say that the transaction itself is not the destination because at times what happens is we can have a client that we sell majority of the company, but they maintain a minority piece of equity, you know, with the larger strategic buyer. And in, in, in another case study and the transaction we just closed in June, that was our client situation where he was looking to retire. His wife has since you know, retired, so she put the pressure on him like, hey, you know, I'm sitting home alone. <laughs> We're supposed to be traveling the world together and you're working. Right. So he had that pressure at home, and um, which was good pressure. It was motivation more than anything. Yeah. And uh, But we showed him a pathway where he can scale his time down over the next two years. In the initial transaction, he took two-thirds liquidity and he maintained one-third equity. That equity roll forward was with a public company. Now, this is all public information um, now because it's already happened, but when we announced the deal on a Tuesday in June, by Friday, the public stock was up 13.8% in a matter of days. And he did nothing to grow his business other than transact. And so the, the, the one-third equity that he, he maintained, you know, grew by almost, uh, uh, was it yeah, 13, almost 14% in, in the same week he sold it. And so a lot of times these are unknowns to entrepreneurs. These are, these are pathways to their destination that they didn't know they had options, or specifically these options. So that's what we're very good at. And, and that's what we love doing. And as I described earlier, these are the puzzles that I love to solve because <laughs> they are right. You're, you're giving certain pieces and you got to figure out how to put it together. I think it's a fascinating, um, business to be in and you get to see, and you're, you're working with so many different types of businesses. I mentioned, uh, healthcare and tech and, yes. uh, architecture, all, all these kinds yes. of businesses. So you meet a whole bunch of different entrepreneurs. So when you come in and do this analysis, right, mm -hmm. do you send a team in, do you go in and, and, you know, it's, I, I assume it's like, let me see your books, mm -hmm. let me see your processes, your standard operating procedures. But when you do this, do you, you know, first of all, who's the team that goes in and does it? Second of all, what are you finding that, these businesses and business owners haven't done to get ready to exit? What's, what are some of the common things that you're seeing? So initially I like, we call them discovery days and I love to participate in those discovery mm -hmm. days and lead those, those meetings. Um, it, there, there's varieties of, of, of what we can do, but it really depends on the client because we always say we will move at the speed of the client. 
And so the discovery days are, are fun in my mind because, you know, they're typically half at four hours. Typically we don't want to, you know, t- take up yeah. a, uh, everyone's entire and this day. This is intense. Too. It's intense. A lot of questions. Yeah. Thought provoking yeah. questions, yeah. hard questions to answer because these are, these are questions that either they have never thought of, right. Or, um, they've never been asked and, or from somebody or even asked themselves. So it really helps define where they're at in terms of this thinking, but the, the tangible outcome of this, uh, discovery day is this transferability assessment that I was describing. And then, um, so there's two components to it. And one of the components is the financial analysis. Now we could either do that before the discovery day or after, uh, it really depends on the client. Um, but I will tell you, there are clients when we do discovery days, it's revealed to all of us that their financial reporting is weak or subpar, right? We did a deal a couple of years ago where their financial record keeping was done on Excel and that Excel workbook was messy. <laughs> so we had to rebuild and reconstruct the financial statements. And this was not a small company. This was a over $10 million a year revenue company still operating on Excel. And it's just the way they operated. Nothing. There's no right or wrong way to do it when you're operating. So as long as you have those measurements to direct your own business, but when it comes to a, an outside party looking inward, you have to have some sort of common reporting that is going to be identifiable to the marketplace. And that's what we did in that situation. What are the tools that you use usually besides Excel to do that financial analysis then? So, so, you know, it's unique to the business and to the industry because what we find is, you know, our AEC clients will use a certain set of um, project management tools that have an accounting component, which then provide, you know, financial reporting. A manufacturing company is going to use a different software that's managing, you know, the production of, mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll say, uh, an aerospace company, let's say that has both commercial and defense projects. And there's, there's software, specific softwares for that industry, which also has an accounting component to it. Um, but when you look at these systems, although they're fantastic when it comes to operating the day-to-day and the production and the work in progress and everything that goes into that, the, the outputs aren't exactly what the market wants to see from the standpoint of evaluating valuation from the standpoint of evaluating cash flow, you know, um, capital expenditures. And so we'll do that analysis. And, but sometimes we find that clients are just so far behind in their reporting because you have to understand when we come in, we're going to make measurements on their business that they've never thought of. And so in situations like that, and why, why, why having a year or two years to plan is important is because we might advise them to, to bring on a professional CPA, you know, or we might have them bring on an interim CFO that's going to come and, and develop KPIs for them to track and follow. Um, we might hire a third party quality of earnings firm to come in and qualify those earnings, right? Because when we go to market, no different than a public stockbroker trading you know, stocks of a public company, we are 
we are trading the ownership of a privately held business. The major difference is we're working off of snapshots of information at a, at a particular date and time where public companies are typically real time, typically, um, in terms of information and the data that's flowing through the marketplace. So when you are taking a snapshot, financial snapshot of a business that you're discussing three months later with an investor, the information's already outdated. And if you or if the business doesn't have the tools to produce ongoing reporting, it's going to be difficult to get at that type of transaction completed. So long way of saying, you know, we come in, we do the assessment in the discovery day. Uh, I do have a team that does the onboarding for the financial analysis. Uh, I have um, uh, my lead financial analyst is Scott. He's been with me for six years, almost seven years now. And so he knows exactly what measurements we want and I want to go in and make on the business. And ultimately what we're, what we're doing with those measurements is preparing the business to go to market and helping the buyer or the investor understand the risks in the business, but also understand the benefits of the business. And a risk as an example would be, I'll, I'll go back to man, aerospace manufacturing. There's only so many OEMs out there. And so there's naturally gonna be customer concentration, revenue concentration. But so as long as that revenue concentration is under 25 to 30% of the total revenues, you know, that's comfortable. But if we have a client that has a customer that's 80% of their revenues, we better have a very good narrative and understanding of why. Is that, is that, is that more transactional or is it more of a partnership? If it is a partnership, you know, is it, is it unilateral or is it bilateral? Are you feeding each other business? And if if we can understand that, then we can share that in our narrative because we call it N squared, you know, numbers and narrative. Because numbers are great, right? And they, they give us the measurements that we need, but narratives are just as important because it threads together with the story of that business and why the business is performing as well as it is or perhaps they're going through a seasonality decline, right? Or seasonal decline, I should say. So we have to figure that out. And we do that through the discovery, through the financial analysis, and then we move forward. Um, you had another question for me and, and I, it slipped my mind. No, yeah, I asked yeah. you like three questions at yeah. once, but so, okay, so you do the workshop, you do the financial discovery, you're seeing that a lot of your clients, the financial reporting maybe isn't that great. Correct. And then what is, so then you go back, you, you get together with your team and you put together a plan and with milestones, I assume, and this is what we're suggesting. And then you have a, a meeting, I guess you go back to them and present basically your findings. Is that, that kind that, of the next step? Precisely. It. Yes. And so what we do is we take, we take those meetings in 90 day leaps, right? Uh, they could be more frequent, they could be less frequent, just depending on where the client is and how much that time they need to make those initial you know, shifts and adjustments that we're advising them on. But every 90 days, we have what we call a transaction trigger. And we have a conversation and we say, okay, are we where we want to be? And are we ready to start entering into dialogues with the marketplace about the opportunity? If the answer is yes, then we move forward. If the answer is no, 
it's typically because there are tasks that still need to be you know completed right or elements of the business that still need to be cured from a transferability standpoint and the fun thing about this is that every 90 days we will reassess the valuation you know based upon how they're scoring and specifically on that valuation spectrum valuation or valuation spectrum right where do they land in every 90 days they're always improving so it was a if it was a four to six valuation range you see it climbing and climbing and climbing and it's very rewarding and we we put together what we call as the meritage stock ticker the mst and it shows them you know if the frequency is every 90 days the moves that they're making how it's improving the value of their company so it's a real-time feedback well real-time in the sense of every 90 days but it, it shows them the reward of the hard work that they're doing and that's how we and we continue that for as long as that's needed right and, and there again there are some of those transferability tasks or topics that just won't be cured until we consummate a transaction right for example if it's um if it's a company that's servicing a specific geography, I mean, it would, in some cases, it would take years to develop, you know, uh, uh, that same business model in a different part of the country or the world. That might be one of those tasks, right, or goals that would be better addressed by the transaction itself. Because you have to remember, the client is typically looking for a pathway out, which means less risk and less reinvestment, not more time, more risk, and, and more investment. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so the, you you have an overall plan, but then you're meeting every ninety days to say, okay, this was our suggestions for the next ninety days. Where are we? Yeah. Can we keep? You know, do we need to keep moving forward right. in in different ways? So. Back to a question I asked earlier, financial reporting, you're seeing that as something that maybe entrepreneurs and business owners, maybe there's, you know, some, some improvements that need to be made uh, with their financial reporting. What other things are you seeing that companies typically are not, I guess, uh, they're not strong in mm -hmm. areas they're not strong in that yeah. helps their valuations and, and to be fair to to operators and entrepreneurs the reality is their financial reporting could be great for their internal purposes right and so from that standpoint we we can't be too critical but from the right to keep lights on to yeah. keep the business going right Correct. the day to day they yes. so they're they're in good they're in you know they're in the black right yes. they're not yes. in the red yes uh, but it's not about the future yeah. valuation or selling the company correct because when when it comes to evaluating the company or transferability of the business we're going to make different measurements that they just might not be making right and one because they may not be aware of it or they may not have the source data to make those measurements so in instances where you know you heard the phrase you know bad data in bad data out right you know, there, there's typically good data there but if we cannot get to the intended measurement by way of triangulation at times you know we are going to have to start making measurements in the business and suggestions to the operator into the owner of that business on what they could be having their team manage, right? Or monitor. Um, 
a classic one in the AEC space is going to be work in progress. So if you think about a business cycle, so a business cycle is you have a pipeline of opportunities, which you work hard to transition to contracts. Those contracts become your backlog, right? And your backlog is then beginning at different types, times for different projects, but that turns to work in progress. And that work in progress is, is really where the measurements are lacking, right? Where are you in this project? You know, is it progress billing? Is it, is it milestone billing? Is it, you know, what is it? And they always have the answer, but they're not measuring where they are in that process. So that's a common measurement that we typically go back and say, okay, well, we need to track this on a weekly basis, ideally. You know, some companies are able to do it um, on a daily basis, depending on timesheets and, and, and the way they invoice. But that gives us good perspective of, you know, then cash flow and AR and, and all sorts of other measurements that you typically see on the, on the balance sheet. But until they make it to the balance sheet, you know, pipeline of balance sheet, there's, there's a lot of information in there that's just not recorded or monitored. And that's what we're typically focusing on in, let's say, the AEC space. Okay. Yeah. So other types of uh, things that you're seeing that companies could improve to get ready for an exit? So key personnel, right? So when you think of a business, uh, if you're a service business, you know, your assets are your people. And it was once illustrated to me that in a service company, just imagine a high-rise building, everyone comes up that elevator every day, they sit at their desk, right, and they work. And they have certain skills and abilities and licenses and education that enables them to do the work that they do. And then at the end of that day, they go down the elevator and they go home, right? And you hope that they come back the next day because those are your assets. And, you know, if you think about more of a... Uh, a, a manufacturing company, you know, you don't have to worry about your manufacturing press not showing up to work the next day. Yeah, it might be broken down, right, or <laughs> due for maintenance, but it's always going to be there, right? Where when in service companies, your people are your assets. They leave, they come back. And more in the modern world, you know, you just hope they log in from home the next day, <laughs> it, which is actually a whole nother subject because. You know, that there's a big cultural shift there. I mean, if you're working from the same spot in your home every day, does it, why does it matter to that individual? What, what flag of what company are they waving, right? That's, that's a whole nother topic and subject, but at least for this topic of key employees that I'm touching on, you need to make sure that, you know, they are committed to the organization as it grows and scales and potentially merges or even sells to a larger strategic. But it really comes down to when you, when you think about the work that we do in that situation is understanding the expectations and managing those expectations. Sometimes they're realistic. Mostly they're realistic. Sometimes they're not. And, but we have to help, you know, those individuals understand, you know, what is realistic what's achievable and what does it mean for them? And I'm talking about key employees, non shareholders, right? Because shareholders are going to behave in, in 
differently than a, a non-shareholder because mm -hmm. they're going to have monetary benefit at the time the transaction closes. So as an example, there are ways that we can, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs are open to this, but there's ways that those key employees can be incentivized either by way of bonuses, minority equity, or some sort of upside potential post-transaction. And so as long as they're showing up and continuing to do what they're doing, right, then everybody wins, including that key employee. And what I love is when we do a transaction with, let's say, a, a you know, single geography company merging or selling to a larger you know, national firm or group or international group. Um, let's say that business is in California and they grew up in Colorado. They merge with this larger entity and now that California employee is saying, hmm, I would love to be back closer to home in Colorado. We have kids now, we can be closer to the in-laws, we can be closer to you know, the parents, the grandparents, and they have an opportunity to transfer you know, horizontally, right, without having to restart again at a new organization. And, and they could relocate. And, and that's something typically a smaller regional company can't offer to an employee. So there are benefits and you just have to understand, you know, what drives the, that individual. So we do some of this work, but we also have advisors that specialize on company culture and transferability of company culture so that that culture maintains itself during, during an integration process. So, which is, which is a whole nother set of services we don't offer, but we certainly have professionals that are experts in this space. And we will tap their shoulder and bring them in if and where needed. Okay. How many companies then have you, or, or business owners, let's say entrepreneurs and yeah. business owners, have you helped exit over oh, the gosh. years? It's been just a rough estimate. Yeah. Hundreds. Um, it, it's been, it's uh, over hundreds of companies. I mean, you think about two billions, two billion of dollars of, of capital deployed, you know, it's been over hundreds that our firm has, has managed. And, and I would say even collectively of those that have worked with the firm. And, you know, one of my mentors, Craig Trass, was with me early on in 2005. He's since retired and he's racing Porsches now and nice. loving life. And um, But, you know, I, collectively over thousands of companies. Okay. Right? So you've met with... Oh gosh! Just hundreds of entrepreneurs and so, business owners. Yeah, so many field trips. <laughs> <laughs> and and from that experience of sitting across the table and having dinners and lunches and workshops, workshopping mm -hmm. with these mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, what are what is one of the top skills or attributes of entrepreneurs, the successful mm -hmm. ones that you really, really went, wow, this this. This yeah. entrepreneur is very successful, whether it's based on exit numbers, based on who they are as an individual. What are, what are some of those top attributes of entrepreneurs that you see? So what, what's interesting is the, the, the common theme there is that what made that entrepreneur successful in the early stages of the development of their business, typically they become distracted with nuances of running the day to day, whether it be insurance renewals, HR related issues, you know, um, 
all of the all of those tasks and responsibilities in and around a growing company. But the very thing that allowed them to launch that company and be successful with that business, you find that those that struggle have become distracted with those other elements of the business and they lose focus of what made them successful to begin with. I can tell you personally, um, five years into our firm, I had the most people, I think I had 20 people in the firm. You know, we're a boutique firm, so we're about you know, half a dozen today. But I made the least amount of money with the most amount of people, right? Because of those distractions. I personally, at, the, and at that time and that age, I struggled with that, right? Um, but what made me successful early in my career, and I'll pick on myself here, is that I was very good at solving those puzzle pieces. I was very good at aligning the right capital for the, for the opportunity to get it to the intended target. And entrepreneurs and clients are not all that different, but the common denominator of those that were successful were very good at, at keeping themselves disciplined on what made them successful and doing that rinse and repeat day in, day out, over and over and over again, and creating a system that they weren't working but the system that they developed was working for them and enabling them to do more of what they're already good at, right? And that's the common theme and common denominator. One observation I've made too is that when you, when you look at an entrepreneur, um, and I've worked for people early in my career, and I'm sure you have, but I can think of those that I worked with or for that just were inconsistent in their behavior. Meaning, uh, let's pick a Billy, let's make up a name, Billy. You know, you work for Billy. The Billy you get today is different than the Billy tomorrow. And the Billy you get next week is a, another version that, you know, may, may not be enjoyable, right? And personally, in, in my personal, in my personal life, in my business life, one thing that I have been very mindful of is is being disciplined and but more importantly being consistent if you show up you know you, you just said earlier in, in this interview you know we had a couple calls you could expect the same brian franco today as you had on those calls that consistency is is a human being we we look for that we gravitate towards that because when you're leading an organization and specifically people, they wanna know, they want that consistency in your leadership. They want that consistency in your guidance and for specifically us as, as advisors. And if we ever you know, show up differently, it's confusing and it dis it's distracting. And I will tell you those that have, the common denominators of those that have been successful have been both disciplined and consistent. And, and I, I could distill it down to those two things. Now, there's obviously other reasons, right, what make an individual uh, uh, successful, but those are just two key elements that I've observed in my life. What's a book that you recommend the most to people, Brian? Oh, gosh. I think the books that have really resonated for me is if it's one book on this topic that I'm talking about, um, and I, and I should remember the author, uh, 
Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. Right? Okay. Great book. Um, it, it speaks to what I was just talking about how, you know, we as entrepreneurs can become distracted, right? So you want to focus, there's an exercise in that book that have, has you focus on those tasks that make you the most money or generate the most revenue for your company. And those tasks that, you know, have to be done, but don't generate revenue or generate very little revenue could be, you know, offloaded into a system, right? Which ultimately enables, you know, the leaders um, of an organization and empowers them to, to, to move forward and grow. I also love, if you'd allow me, another book is uh, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John C. Maxwell. And in that book, there's, I mean, there's, there's versions of that book, right? But um, John C. Maxwell in that book talks about if you want to develop a true leader, right? Put them in a nonprofit setting, right? And, and see how they lead those people. Because in a nonprofit setting, as you may have experienced, you're dealing with volunteers. Those, those individuals are showing up because they, they want to participate in whatever that nonprofit organization focus is, but they don't have to listen to you as a leader. They don't have a paycheck that they're waiting for at the end of the week, right? So, you know, you, you don't have that power over them. And because you don't have that power over them, you know, uh, I think John C. Maxwell says in that book, you know a good leader by how many followers they have, right? And in a nonprofit setting, if, if the driver's not income, right, for people to show up and you could still lead them and they still follow you, he, he just, and that was one of, one of the rules that he came up with, but it, it, I see it to be true as well, right? And I tested that even in my own life and I've seen experienced that in my own life. And so I, I think those are two really good books. Awesome. So, uh, We've gone over time. I appreciate yes. <laughs> the time that you've spent here. I just have a lightning round of questions to That's get to true. know you a little bit better yeah. and uh, we'll wrap up. So, okay. so what is your favorite candy bar? Snickers. Favorite music artist? Uh, it, it varies, but uh, uh, I, I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. Favorite cereal? Rice Krispies. Mac or PC? Mac. Google or Microsoft? Google. Dogs or cats? Dogs. I'm allergic to cats. <laughs> <laughs> and cats are just not loyal. Phantom or Les Mis? Ooh. I've seen both. <sighs> I'm going to have to go with Les Mis. All right. What's something that most people don't know about you? You know, I shared uh, 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 in this recording about being you know, a young father, right? And um, so... A lot of, you know, strangers don't know this about me, right? Because I have younger kids and, you know, you, you always have people come up to you and say, hey, be careful. They're going to grow up so fast. And, you know, then it's like, do I explain the story? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but that's something that most folks don't know about me. Yeah. I, I loved learning about that because I think it's part of who you are Absolutely. taking on that responsibility at such a young age. Yeah. And uh, you have a wonderful son and he, 
He actually is working with you. Yes. And uh, producing your podcast. We didn't get a chance to talk about it yet, but how do yeah. people find your podcast and, and tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So we, we, uh, my oldest son, Jacob, uh, he went to, uh, he graduated from AFI American Film Institute last year. And, uh, he's now an adjunct professor as well, teaching, uh, film and directing. And what, what a better teammate to have right and happens to be my oldest son it's a fun dynamic but uh we we produced and written a show called private capital mastery you could find it on wherever you consume podcasts but private capital mastery continues to talk about the journey of the entrepreneur and how to leverage the private capital markets to achieve that growth and scale and to ultimately generate but what I'll call, you know, create generational wealth through massive exit strategies. And we talk about, it's an insider's playbook on how to do that. And we unpack little by little by little every week, because there's a lot to unpack. And we've developed and built a community around this. And it's been fun. It's been inspiring. And you meet a lot of really good people and including yourself without that podcast, I don't think we would have ever met. And I'm very grateful to not only be here with you, but to know you and, and now to have that lasting relationship with you. That's great. I likewise, I, um, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you, Brian, we'll put links to all of, you know, Meritage, uh, partners, yes. we'll, uh, uh, we'll put links to your podcast. However, yes. your LinkedIn, yeah, LinkedIn as well. Yeah. I know you're posting clips from the podcast on LinkedIn. Yes. So I'd encourage uh, all the listeners to go follow Brian on LinkedIn as well. But thank you so much for driving down yeah, uh, today to Carlsbad. It's been so fun to, I, I, I feel like we could talk for hours. There's so many things <laughs> to unpack we could. and there's so many lessons you've learned and, and the people you're working with are people that I'd like to reach, you know, with yeah, this podcast too. Absolutely. And, and so thank you so much for being here, Brian. I, I wish Meritage Partners, uh, just massive success in the coming years. And I hope one day you can retire so you can join all the people you've helped exit <laughs> on those fishing trips. Yes. And uh, again, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, and yes, we could probably go on for another hour, hour and a half, but uh, happy to come back at any time and, and talk more about anything that, that you think is relevant to your listener base. But again, we'll put those links in, but you know, meritage-partners.com is our website. Uh, Private Capital Mastery is our podcast. And, uh, of course you have my number personally, so I I'd look forward to staying in touch and, and, and getting together Carlsbad, wherever it may be, I'll, I'll come, I'll come find you. I'll take it. <laughs> I love the sunny weather here. Yes. So. Yes. There's, there's a lot to love. Well, I really hope you enjoyed listening to the Kyle Knowles interview and myself. It really gives a lot of clarity into my journey and where I started and I owe it to you guys to get to know me and in this journey as I'm growing and as I'm working every day to bring viable content and material to you, I look forward to being with you next week and the upcoming series that we have where again, I'm going to go through some very specific details of the private capital mastery. I'm going to open up my playbook continue to show you how those markets can be leveraged to grow, scale, and sell your company, ultimately achieving massive liquidity through well-thought-out, well-planned exit strategies. I'm Brian Franco. This is the Private Capital Mastery Podcast, and I'll see you next week. <music>